Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the show that's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, here's Michael Normanson. Hello. Get in touch with us on the new Twitter account, at The Phil Hay Show. And right now you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. You get all the great analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around, and ad-free versions of all these podcasts. This week, Phil? This week, I've been writing about Bielsa's sales pitch to Bilbao before he took the job in 2011. And we went through the the full video that he sent to the club um, before he he took the job. And we've also got an interview with David Healy as part of our Cult Hero series. To check that out and get the podcast ad-free, go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. 40% discount at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. London curse. What London curse? Uh, We beat Fulham over the weekend and... Done and dusted then. 100% record in London in recent times. It's going well. It had to happen. We were saying this has got to be the one. If it wasn't Fulham away, then it was going to run on for another three or four years, this one. And it was always going to be the easiest of the fixtures away in London, regardless of the fact that Fulham have picked up a bit and, and we're actually pretty competitive on the night. But I was saying on Twitter that I almost got shat on twice by a bird on Friday, once on the way home from taking the kids to school and again when I got to the station to get the train down to to London and it seemed like a definite sign to me and sure enough although it came to pass How close is nearly shut on? Pretty close actually it was it was kind of borderline where you thought that was just about down my back and I know people say it's lucky if you get hit but try telling that to somebody who's got two loads of bird shit down the back <laughs> as, they're, as they're walking around the, the streets of London so it was it was a near miss and um, yeah I, I could feel the signs could see it in the tea leaves we all predicted a Leeds win, actually, for this one when we spoke last week. I went a little bit out on a limb and predicted a huge win just to basically run counter to you two. But yeah, I was feeling in my water, same as you, narrow win, which is what transpired. Do you think it could have been more? Yeah, 8-0 you said, didn't you? And it seemed a bit a bit excessive. But yes, it, it could have been. I felt that once it went 2-1 in the second half, Leeds class shone through, really. And, and Fulham were finding it very difficult to track back and, and to keep them contained as, as they pushed for an equaliser. And I think it... There wasn't much tension in the game for Leeds, I don't think, but I did feel that at one all there was that sense of this could go either way and there was a pretty critical period before Rafinha scored where Phillips and Dallas were having to really fight for the midfield and Fulham had got the goal just before half-time and I think we're starting to to suspect that there might be something in it for them and that if they got the next goal, there was a good chance of of them taking a win from that game. But as soon as Leeds pieced that goal together, the, the winning goal, you felt the tension rise in Fulham. You felt them getting a little bit desperate with their passing and, and their style of play. And it did seem as if Leeds were going to pick them off a game, which obviously they didn't. But um, there was enough in, in their attacking play in the last half hour, I thought, to, to demonstrate why it is that Leeds are around about 10th and, and Fulham are still lodged in, in the bottom three. See, I've got to say, I did find it a fairly anxious last half hour, even even despite the, the goal and them not offering a great deal. Maybe it's just the sort of the muscle memory kicking in of, of throwing away wins in the past. But it was interesting to well to hear that and also to hear Fulham fans talking on their podcast and YouTube channels that they essentially had no hope for that after the, afterwards, whereas we were more, I think we were expecting them to score from a corner, essentially. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how we, yeah, you think that um, the confidence of other teams' fans is absolutely bulletproof, whereas yours is absolutely fragile and made of porcelain, when it's actually, it's the same, we're all the same, we're all equally crackers, aren't we, when it comes to worrying about our teams? You zone in on your own team and, and you, you think about, your own weaknesses and your own flaws and everything else. And and as you as I've found with Leeds over the years, there's that paranoia about what can go wrong and, and what probably probably will go wrong. It didn't feel in the stadium as if a, a second full equaliser was coming. And it would have been really undeserved. I, I thought that the tense period was definitely that stage after half time when it was in the balance. But the first half from Leeds up until Fulham scored was was really impressive and really good. It was it was aggressive. The the press was effective. They were they were hunting for the ball over halfway and they were stopping Fulham getting much of a run on Mesley and causing much trouble at that end of the pitch and as I say it, it did just feel like a, a pretty steady Premier League side 
playing against a side who are still in, in pretty grave danger of going down and a side who are going to have to start making something in these games pretty quickly if, if they're not going to go. Um, so very much a deserved win on the night and another kind of feather in the cap. Should Fulham be better given the players they've got? No, I, I think the way they're playing at the moment and the results they're getting are probably reasonable and, and fair for what Parker's got. I think the problem for them has been the first half of the season when they definitely did underperform slightly and, and when they could have been better and I think could have put themselves in a stronger position, especially given how sluggish Newcastle have been and, and the fact that Brighton are picking up wins pretty sporadically and have had a struggle to get past 30 points. I, I think if Fulham go, they'll regret the fact that they have because it won't be... It won't be the case of Sheffield United or West Brom where you know it's felt as if they've been gone for ages now. Fulham are, are right in the mix and, and should be right in the mix. They've got a good enough squad to compete for 17th, I feel. But they have to make sure that they're in contention for the very last game against Newcastle. And in order to do that, they're going to have to find themselves two, possibly three wins, I think, from the games that are left. And they don't look like a side who are going to rattle off victories particularly easily. But I think they do have the players that can that can get them enough points to certainly keep them in the mix. I guess the subtext to Michael's question there is if Bielsa was in charge of that side, do you think they'd be where they are? And I think they'd be higher up the table. Possibly, although I guess it's not the case that because Bielsa's done this here with Leeds, he'd been able to do it everywhere else. I do, though, generally feel that you would see with him a kind of elevated performance across the board. I guess to, to put it another way, if you brought somebody like Solskjaer over to Ellen Road, and asked him to get out of this lead squad what Bielsa's getting out of them, I don't think he would. And I don't think too many other coaches would either. So yes, they would probably be better on the Bielsa. I don't think they, in terms of results, I don't think they'd be vastly better because I, I'm not sure they've got the, the players there to be anything more than bottom half and, and probably to always be in the around the, the bottom six. But they've, they've got a chance. And, and the reason I thought it would be tight is because they are playing better now than, than they were before Christmas um, I, I couldn't see 3-0, 4-0 I, I didn't think it would, would go like that but I did think it would be a Leeds win Alright Captain Hindsight <laughs> <laughs> And what would Bielsa do with Mitrovic? It feels like a, our time in the Championship was in some way always looking at Mitrovic and saying if only we had someone who could score goals like that and then he came on the other night and more or less did nothing at all Well they had that lovely goal for Serbia didn't they? On Tuesday night I think it was beautiful chip from outside the box but I hardly saw him on Friday when he came on. I wasn't really aware of him being there at all, even though you saw the substitution. He he just kind of blended into what was going on and, and got lost in the mist. And I mean, he is he is wildly expensive for a player who was in the championship um, and far more than Bamford, who's not particularly cheap, but you know is, is, is relatively cheap by top Premier League standards. They seem to have moved from one end of the spectrum to the other. There was a period where you were almost envious of Mitrovic's finishing because Bamford didn't seem to have the same sharpness about him. But now in the Premier League, it's gone the other way where Mitrovic doesn't seem to have any goals in his game, doesn't seem to have much in the way of assists either. And Bamford, even after the disappointment of the England squad announced 24 hours earlier, turned in a top quality performance, I thought, at Craven Cottage. Really good goal, really good assist, just seemed on it right the way through. And if you were given the option of which one you'd want to have, and if they were both English and you're saying to Gareth Southgate, which of these two are you going to take to the Euros? I don't think he's he, going to take... He'd go for Ollie Watkins. Well, he would do, yeah. yeah. Um, and Mitrovic and Bamford would have to find a pub and watch it on the telly together. Uh, but he's not going to go for Mitrovic, is he? Because Mitrovic is not in form. And, and actually, at the moment, if, say, sake of argument, Leeds decided in the summer that they wanted to move on from Bamford, which they won't, they would not find it difficult to find clubs who would want to take him and, and would see him as a good investment. I think it would be a challenge for Fulham to recoup the money on Mitrovic and also for Mitrovic to find someone, certainly in England, that would want to take him on the sort of wage that he's on. So it says a lot for the way that Bamford has improved and, and coped with this season. It doesn't say a huge amount for Mitrovic's performance at, at this level. And if you go back earlier in Mitrovic's career as well, this isn't the first time that there have been questions raised about him in the Premier League. It's funny, isn't it, how the Premier League does this? It, it, it lays down a test, it lays down a marker, making or breaking players' careers. And I, I absolutely made up for Bamford that he's doing what he's doing. And let's not forget that he was carrying an injury as well on Friday. So attacking the near post as he did, fantastic. Through ball for the second goal. So he's got himself an assist on the night as well. What a player he's turned out to be. And it was a hard week for him. I feel that I jinxed him last week, didn't I? I said I didn't want to jinx him, but then I said, look, there's really, really good chance that he's going to be included. And it was a, a borderline decision between him and, and Ollie Watkins. But what was interesting about that was that in amongst the coverage of Bamford and the talk of Southgate watching him, there hadn't been much written about Watkins. And, and it came a little bit out of the blue. I don't think 
we should get into Watkins Bamford debate because to my mind they're both very good forwards and and I think Watkins to a degree is is there on merit he's not had a, a poor season at all but I thought Bamford deserved to be in it and when Southgate announces his squad on a Thursday morning you get exceptions like Trent Alexander Arnold who he clearly phoned personally to say you're not going to be in the squad and this is why and it's not the end of the line for you and, and doors not closed but you your form hasn't been great with somebody like Bamford the squad just drops at 2 p.m. and you almost realised by default that you're not going to be in it because the phone hasn't gone in the morning and he'll have spoken to Phillips and he'll know how Calvin Phillips found out and Phillips spoke himself about Southgate phoning him, you know, kind of before training to tell him that he was in. And, you know, as, as Bamford was, as the squad was dropping, Bamford and the squad were on the train down to London. It's a pretty miserable journey. It's a it's a bit of a kick in the teeth. Sorry, I've, I've just got a vision of him now. Imagine if, if Southgate did phone him, but to tell him no. So you sat there in the train carriage, and he's he's polite enough, his Bamford, to say, "Do you know what? I'll go, I'll go out and take this call in the lobby. I won't, I won't disrupt the whole carriage." So he's seen his phone. Oh, Gareth Southgate, I've got his number stored. And then you go out into the lobby, and Southgate's phoned him and said, "Just to let you know, Patrick, you're not in the squad this time." And then he's got to go back into the carriage and tell all his mates. Or just to let you know, Patrick, and then you hit a tunnel and you're going, "Hello, <laughs> hello." We've just <laughs> we've just arrived at King's Cross, to, Gareth. Well, are you there? Trying, yeah. trying desperately to to phone him back, but it's not a secret that. Southgate has been kind of looking a bit more speculatively at Luke Ayling and, and Jack Harrison. I think the difference with Bamford is that there's been so much coverage of this and Southgate has been almost like omnipresent at the games. He, he was at Leicester, he was at Wolves, he was at the Villa game, um, he was there again for, for Chelsea. But he does live in Harrogate, and it's worth he, saying that. That's probably part of the reason why he spends a lot of time at Ellen Road. He, yeah, no, it's, a, it's an easy trip for him. And, and also the fact that the games are split up means that he can get to more now than he would be able to in, in normal circumstances. But it did very much feel like Bamford was was in the firing line for this, you know, and, and was, was going to get himself in there. And I know Southgate said, you know, it was basically a close run thing between him and Watkins. It was Watkins does these things really well and um, actually Patrick does these things really well also. And it reminded me a bit of when you go for a job and you don't get it and people try to be nice to you and say, your application was excellent and, you know, you were brilliant and you're really unlucky and it was really a toss of a coin. You don't want to hear it, do you? You don't want to hear it. You don't speaking, want... speaking from bitter experience. Well, I was saying to you earlier in the week that years and years ago, before I got this job, I applied for the um, the Everton job on, on the Liverpool Echo and got down to, to the last two. And the decision was absolutely right. The person who got it was far more experienced than me and, and, and everything else. And, and it was the person to go for. But when they get back to you and they say, you know, you did everything right. It wasn't your fault. You know, we really would have liked to take you on. It's just we don't have two positions. You'd almost rather in that kind of petty, pathetic way. You'd Tell rather, me I'm awful. You'd rather they just said to you, yeah, your interview was poor and to be honest, you didn't like your CV and you, you know, your cuttings are nothing to, to write home about. Um, so it's not a surprise that, you, that you're out of it. And it did feel a little bit with Southgate, like he was kind of saying to Bamford, you've done everything right. You know, it's not, it's not your fault. You should be very proud of yourself. Little tap on the head. And he's a, he's a nice guy, Southgate, and he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't want to be below the belt with it. But it'll have been hard for Bamford to take because... If you remember how much Ireland and Mick McCarthy were chasing him, Mick McCarthy especially, to the point where McCarthy said, I absolutely refuse to phone him anymore. You know, if he wants to meet, he can meet. And you know what McCarthy's like, but he just basically said, I can't be doing with this. You know, it's either he wants to play for us or he doesn't. And then you read quotes from Bamford saying, you know, one England cap at the end of my career would be a dream come true. You know, that that would be enough for me. You do realise how much this matters to him and, and how much it it means to him. And again, I'm I'm pleased that he's managed to paint this completely different image of himself from the footballer who for some reason was kind of regarded as a bit aloof and not bothered or didn't have pressure on himself and everything else. Entirely, I think, because of his of his background, people perceiving that. You can see that between Leeds and between England, it does really, really, really matter to him. And and yeah, he he will I think he'll I think he'll have been extremely disappointed by that last week. Yeah, I think he fell victim to because he's got quite a languid running style. And then you couple that with maybe taking half a second too long and then that feeds into the idea, oh, he doesn't have enough desire when actually all it took was a little bit of watching Erling Haaland at um, Bielsa's recommendation and suddenly he's just added that explosive nature to his game and the power in his finishes, he hits that ball so hard, it's ridiculous. I think his first season at Leeds as well, he played quite a lot of it not fully fit on carrying injuries as well, didn't he? Like the, the Derby playoff game, he was very poor in that and he, he was nothing like the play we see now. Like he wasn't chasing players in the same way and making it difficult for defenders, but it's because he was coming back from an injury and Roof had, yeah. had got injured in the first game. So I think some of that stuff was probably held against him, whereas now he's got a huge amount of credit in the bank and if he has bad games, people will 
just accept it in a way that mm. they wouldn't necessarily have done in the championship. I, I do think it comes back as well to the weak perception that he's from a relatively wealthy family. You know, he's he's pretty comfortable. So how much does he actually need it? And he's not, you know, he's not of a council estate. He's not had a tough upbringing. Therefore, is the desire there? I, I think the irony of that further down the line is that you'll probably find that more and more kids who play for football clubs will be privately educated or whatever else because footballers they're, at the they're moment all millionaires they're, at well, teenagers well, aren't they now? footballers at the moment will be sending their kids there that's that's what they what they do and, and ultimately it's irrelevant if you're that's and that's one of the things that I've really liked about Bielsa with Bamford is that if you listen to the stories about Bamford with Sean Dyche at Burnley it sounds very much and you know Bamford tells this story so it's it's slanted from his point of view but it sounds very much as if Dyche just thought that it it was all a bit of a game to him and and that there wasn't that that real hunger that managers want to, to see him and want to talk about. Whereas with Bielsa, he's just looked at him and said, he's got this about him, he's got that about him, this will all work for me. And actually, he's an extremely good player and a very dedicated professional. And and that's now the image you have of him, as opposed to this, what you, you saw previously, which was somebody who just didn't seem to fit anywhere. Uh, he was great at the on Friday and he's had a great season. Melier, you mentioned him a little bit earlier. would like to return to him and uh, a couple of um, cat-like saves. I mean, that one where he got the hands to it and it spanned back towards the goal line and then Ailing cleared it was well, a tremendous save in, in the first instance and a great piece of fortune or control, whichever way you want to look at the backspin. It, it was it was ridiculous and he's pulled off quite a few like that, which I think is the sort of thing that marks him out as massive goalkeeping talent. You know, he's so young that there are parts of his game which are going to have to improve aerially particularly. I think that's quite apparent to everybody, but he is only 21. And given that that is a young age for a footballer generally, but a very, very young age for a goalkeeper. The, the potential in him is vast. And one of my colleagues, Adam Crafton, was saying, I don't think it was before the Fulham game, I think it was prior to that Chelsea game, was saying that what, what he really likes about Melier is that even though the mistakes creep in from time to time and there was the, the one down at Spurs or a couple down at Spurs or a couple at, at Arsenal as well, it doesn't seem to stay with him and it doesn't seem to take the train off the rails. He does seem to be able to get back on the horse and just say, right, okay, clean head, clean slate. And play extremely well again. And I suspect we probably all had slight doubts at the start of this season. Not that he was a good keeper, but about whether he would be an adequate first choice in the Premier League at this stage of, of his career. And I don't think, as we get into the, the running, there's any question that he should be first choice again next season. I think he is playing well enough. How did the club go about recruiting a goalkeeper? Because it, it seems that Kassir is probably on his way, if it's a possibility, to get him out. So how do we go about getting a, a number two stroke number one? It's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, they, they were interested in um, Martinez who went to Villa um, from Arsenal last year. And I think the point about him is that if you've been saying to him, the likelihood is he's going to be behind Melier, who's 21, I think Martinez would have said, well, do you know what? I'll go somewhere else because he's a quality keeper in his own right and too good really to, to be sat on the bench unless you're talking about a, a really top elite Champions League squad. So it would be difficult, but I think, again, you'd probably be able to sell yourself to good quality keepers by saying, come in and compete. You know, come in and compete. It's not the case that Melier is going to be first choice forever. It's not the case that he's not going to have periods where things go wrong for him or or it dips. Um, You've seen previously that Peacock Farrell was replaced halfway through a season where he was doing okay and and the results were were good, but Bielsa clearly felt that something else was needed. And then since um, Casillas' ban there's never been any looking back with, with Melly. It's just, you know, Bielsa again has just stuck with that. So there is the scope to play, but I think what they, they have to do is to make sure that whoever comes in, um, if, they, if they do move Casillo on, whoever comes in is Premier League standard um, so that you've got two goalkeepers that you can rely on any day of the week. A word for Calvin Phillips then, who did that brilliant tackle in the build-up to the to the second goal, fed it through to Bamford, who slid it through to uh, Rafinha. Great feet from Rafinha, which we remarked uh, via text, and we were like, his feet were amazing. Yeah, it's just sexy to, belly dancing. Just to, to have the, even though it wasn't the cleanest of finishes, just to have the presence of mind to switch it across to his right and run it across the defender and then just poke it in at the near post is absolutely brilliant. But that tackle from Phillips, and Phillips in general, because he was the one to watch versus Anguissa that you picked out last week. And I think he, he had that one, that battle secured, didn't he, for the very a large extent. He did. Extent. I, he won it in the end at Ellen Road, I felt. I thought the last 10 minutes when the clubs played there, um, Phillips moved himself 10 yards further up the pitch and, and started to stick his boot in um, a little bit more than he'd been able previously. That tackle and, and then just feeding it to Bamford was the culmination of the scrap that had been going on around halfway with Phillips and Dallas and, and Fulham's midfield. 
in that period at one all when it was going to go one way or the other um, and you definitely felt that another goal was coming and it just depended who was able to to find that little bit extra and and as I say from the moment that goal was scored and the, the footwork from Rafinha was brilliant I think that that is really difficult to do you know in a tight space like that with players all all around you and a, a tight angle to finish it as soon as that went in it just seemed to me that Fulham started to panic slightly, started to get get a bit desperate. And there is a mental side to this for them, which is that the games are going to start running out soon. And at some point, if they're going to stay up, they've got to get past Newcastle. And Angisa, you've got eyes for him, Michael. Do you reckon he's the sort of target Leeds might go for when looking at midfield if Fulham were to drop? He's a player I would go for. Yeah, absolutely. I think whether or not they can realistically sell a move to Leeds to him, I don't know because you, you have the problem of an England international in there who just keeps getting better, looks more and more secure, looks more and more accurate and effective with his passing. And if you were saying to Anguissa, look, we need somebody to come in and not necessarily compete with Phillips, but to be there if Phillips isn't available, it's a little bit like what I was saying about Martinez. It's not too much of a of a sell to a player. I think they'll go for somebody else. I think they'll try and find somebody potentially younger or somebody who is more willing to be a sort of backstop to, um, to Phillips, if you like. But Anguissa, to me, looks extremely talented and and a player I would have, yeah, for sure. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Another sad week in the recent history of Legion United in losing another club legend in Peter Lorimer, one of the biggest club legends. We'd like to get your take on this, Phil, and what you think of his time at Ellen Road. Well, we did have some forewarning of this because Leeds had said a couple of weeks ago that, that he'd been taken into a hospice and was, was clearly very ill. And, and in Peter's case, sadly, he'd been ill for, for quite a while and, and had done well to, to fight various things for as long as he had. He, he'd suffered from leukaemia, but had overcome it. And again, it's it's not only been a hard year in terms of losing Leeds United legends, it's been a hard year in, in terms of losing the best of them. You, you were talking about a record club record appearance maker in Jack Charlton, uh, World Cup winner in Norman Hunter, and now Peter Lorimer, record goal scorer, club's youngest ever player, two records which I think will probably stand forever or, or thereabouts. I mean, for one thing, players don't stick around at a club long enough now to compete with records like that. But but also very few who come Leeds through Leeds will be anywhere near as good as those three that we've spoken about. With somebody like Lorimer, same with Hunter and, and Charlton, I, I always regret slightly the fact that I only get to see what I know of them from YouTube and videos and, and I never had the, the joy of seeing them in the flesh and, and knowing exactly what they could do in, in an era where pitches were poor and you know the, the balls were extremely heavy and it was nowhere near as easy I don't think to play as it is now given all the technological advances and, and the way that, that players are, are looked after but in order to cover this we decided to speak to, to goalkeepers who played against Lorimer in his career so who knew what it was like to face the lash and to, to deal with that 90 mile an hour shot. So we, we got in touch with Bob Wilson, the, the Arsenal legend, and Pat Jennings, who played for Spurs and, and Northern Ireland, and Alex Stepney, who was over at Manchester United. And, and also on, on the day that, that Lorimer's death was, was announced, I phoned Jim Montgomery, the old Sunderland goalkeeper, who made that ridiculous save from him in the 73 FA Cup final, the, the, the tip onto the bar. And what I loved about the chats with them was that they all knew exactly why you were phoning. They all knew exactly what you were asking about. And and if there was any thought in your head that the, the power of his finishing, the power of his shooting might have been exaggerated or might have been a, a bit of a myth or something he played on, they all said it, it was extraordinary. There was there was nothing like it. They struggled to pick out any other player who had a finish as, as fierce as his. And you know, Bob Wilson said he, he was an absolute nightmare because he, the balls were so heavy in those days that when players picked it up 30 yards out, 
as a goalkeeper, you didn't feel in any danger. It was too the distance was too long realistically to to shoot and to score from from there. But it was different with Peter because Peter had that power and and had that, that natural dynamite in his in his right boot. And and Wilson said, you know, in the nicest possible sense, I absolutely hated him. I hated playing against him because he had the scope to embarrass anybody from any distance. Eddie Gray's been one of the go-to guys for reaction with this because he was obviously central to the Reavy team. And how's he? Because he's seen so many of his friends pass away across the last 12, 18 months. I left Eddie in peace over the weekend. I, I sent him a text, but you're right. It's felt as if time and again, we've been going back to him to ask about Hunter, about Charlton, about Trevor Cherry, now about Peter, um, and even earlier this week, Frank Worthington, who you know Eddie managed and played alongside at Leeds. It is becoming a staggeringly long list. And it's it's hard for him, and, and I think in the case of people like Hunter and especially Peter Lorimer, Peter was one of his closest friends. You know, his best friends. They were together for years and years at Leeds. They saw a huge amount of each other after both of them finished playing. After both, you know, after Eddie finished coaching and, and managing as well. But half the time, when I phoned Peter to do his column for the Evening Post, he was on the golf course with Eddie, and they used to play once a week, and they were as competitive. As ever, and they used to joke about the results, but you knew that it mattered to both of them. You know, both of them wanted to win and, and neither of them wanted to, to give any quarter. And it's that realisation as well. And, and Bob, Bob Wilson said this himself, that you, you know, you're losing people of a similar age. You're, you're losing people from, from your era. And I think it, it must only naturally make them think about how old they are and about what, what does come around for everybody. So yeah, it's been not just difficult for Eddie, but I think the players who were teammates of, of these guys and, and knew them so well, it's hard to lose one. It's extremely hard to lose a, a stream of them, which seems to be what's happening at the moment. And it feels like there's a greater urgency now to commemorate the achievements of, of the players that are still with us. So someone like Eddie can be recognised during his lifetime. So we don't have to wait until he's gone to do something to commemorate him. Obviously we've run out of stands now, but you know, that there's a, a movement, for example, to maybe do a nice um, the wave that the wave that they all used to do on the pitch when all the Revy team came out. You know, maybe across the entrance to the East Stand, whether it's something like that, or you know, it feels like we need to get these guys on the record properly before we lose them all. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because I don't think people feel that comfortable being eulogised or recognised in that way while they're they're still alive. I think Eddie would probably be a little bit uncomfortable about that, knowing him. As I do, he would understand why people would want to do it. But in the same way that I, I know he would have felt uncomfortable talking about Peter before Peter's death, even though it was quite clear that, that it was coming over the past two or three weeks. I think if you said to him, you know, we're, we're thinking of doing a statue of you or this, that and the other, he would probably find it strange. And I think he would he would know why why people wanted to do that. I just think he might feel that, that the timing the timing was wrong. And, and it becomes so difficult to properly acknowledge people when... There are no crowds at the games when the games are just ticking over almost in a pretty perfunctory manner, almost as a bit of a box-ticking exercise, if we're being brutally honest in, in some respects. You don't have the days where you acknowledge these players. You don't have the days where tributes are, are paid to them. It, it will come back around and I don't think there'll be any option for Leeds but to arrange some form of event once the, the ground is full. But then again, when is the ground going to be full? You would like to think we'll have crowds of some sort back next season, but is that going to be 12,000 as opposed to 35,000? Is it going to be packed out? Is it going to be smaller again? Are we going to have other COVID lockdowns? It's it, They can do things like rename the stands. They will find other ways of acknowledging Lorimer without any question. But I wrote on the, the anniversary of the, the last home game, Ellen Road, that had a crowd, the, the famous Luke Ayling um, Huddersfield game, about the sense of loss and everything that's gone on in the past 12 months. And I spoke to um, Jack Charlton's granddaughter and, and she was telling the story of how she had to get everybody on video phone for the unveiling of the East Stand, the, the, the new Jack Charlton stand, because they weren't allowed to travel from the northeast, and that's where most of them were based. So you were doing what would have otherwise been a, a huge ceremony and a, and a huge event over an iPhone. And it has to be done. And as she said, everybody did for us what they possibly could have done, but it's not how it should be and it's not how anybody would want it to be. You mentioned there, Phil, about ghostwriting Peter Lorimer's column, which was for people below a certain vintage is going to be one of the things they remember him by. He was very vocal in his support of, of Ken Bates. And to some people that may have, have tarnished his legacy. I mean, we did address this on, on the Square Ball podcast and said, look, you know, that era's forgotten the things that went on, the things that were said in that era. We've moved past that, but we're able to kind of just leave that in the past now because we're in the Premier League and, and things are going are going pretty well. But it's still there. It's still part of the record. So 
how was that as an experience? Did you ever find yourself thinking, don't say that? There were times when it was uncomfortable because you knew what he was saying was very much at odds with public feeling or certainly a, a pretty large section of the public. And that was definitely true more than ever, I think, during the debates the here and, and towards the end of it. I mean, I mean, the routine was that I would phone Peter during the week. We'd chat for about 20 minutes and then I would turn his, his quotes into a ghostwritten column. And what Peter said was what went into the column. You know, that that's how, how it goes. And he'd quite often be in his pub when he called him. He'd, he'd quite often be on the golf course. It, it, on a lot of occasions, it was very good fun to do. And it, it wasn't as if it was constantly about Bates. It wasn't as if it was constantly about ownership. There were, there were numerous weeks where it would stray into discussions about players or the team or wider issues and everything else. But the columns about Bates were on deniably contentious because he was very supportive of that regime at the time there was a huge amount of, of opposition to it it's difficult in 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 that scenario because I, I find this with Eddie as well you know Eddie is always very very measured when it comes to talking about Leeds which isn't to say that he supports people he doesn't think he he should support but I think he realizes that as a former player he, he feels some obligation to try and be supportive of the club and you know to try and not badmouth the club to to try and help them as best he can. And, and certainly from Lorimer's perspective, I think he felt that he was he was kind of fighting for a board that, that he wanted to support. But I can't deny that at the time it was very apparent that there was a disconnect between him and, and the supporters who, who didn't like the column, who didn't like the tone of it or the, the opinions in it. And I remember the supporters trust March through Leeds and up to Ellen Road. I think it was January 2012, which was almost like the striking of the bell for Bates looking to, to sell the club and to move on. And people walking past his pub and, and chanting 90 lies an hour. And it was incredibly sad. It was incredibly sad and it, and it did do damage to his reputation in that period. I think he was entitled to his opinion and, and that was his opinion. And you know you have to reflect at the same time, he was on the board at Leeds, so it wasn't as if he was a an independent voice. He was kind of there in, in Bates in a circle. But I think it would be wrong to dwell on that now and, and to focus heavily on that in comparison to everything else that he did for the club and, and particularly as as a player. I, I saw a great stat from somebody who was saying that I think five of the players who played alongside Lorimer when he came back to Leeds, I think in, in 80, the early 80s, were not even born when when he was, was starting out, which shows you how much of his time he, he devoted to the club and not just when he was a player afterwards as well. And and when you, you're talking about somebody who is the club's record goal scorer and the youngest player ever to play for them and... and as decorated as anybody else who's gone through Elland Road, I don't think a column in the Evening Post can sever that. And you do see it with some fans. We've seen it across the years, like with the support of, of Chilino, that the default position is to support the institution, you know, if that's what you want to look at the club as, rather than simply just a football team. It's, it's so much more than that. So there are people who will always lean towards that as a position rather than, I don't know, rail against anything that the club does. With the best will in the world, we've all done it, haven't we? Whichever football club you support, there are always periods where things are going wrong or things don't feel quite right. And you find yourself wanting to give people the benefit of the doubt, players, managers, owners, whichever level you're talking about. And it's, I guess to an extent, it's only only natural because you do want to have that inner hope that things are, are going to going to get better. I think the problem in the Bates era towards the end, and there were people internally who could see this as well, was that it was properly running the ground and, and it was going nowhere. And, and from that period, ownership, passing to ownership, it, it felt the same. It felt as if there was never going to be any conceivable progress. And, and even in that first season under Radrazani, you were left with the same feeling at the end of it, that you were stuck in this corner. So I think Peter was, was trying to be as optimistic as, as he could be and was certainly was certainly very strong in, in making his, his views heard. But yeah, I, I can't deny that it was a difficult time for him and, and th- that there were periods where you, you did produce columns that you, you felt were not going to do him any good. On the flip side of that, though, we've seen loads of brilliant anecdotes, be it on Twitter. We had some emailed to us at the Square Ball, just people recounting spending time in his pub. Like, the, you know, you think the, the connection that all the Scandinavian fans have, that was their go-to place, wasn't it? They'd all come over and, and mass at the Commercial Inn in, in Holbeck. So those personal interactions, I think, supplant any of that stuff. And I think now now he has passed on. We've all resolved ourselves into the position of thinking none of that matters. It, none of it matters. What matters is his record, his appearances, his goals. Youngest player, probably one of the oldest players that we'll, we'll ever have as well, going back to it. And the, just a, a lifetime of devotion to Leeds, really. I, um, I wrote for the 
Scandinavian Supporters Club magazine about two, three months ago before we realised that Peter was was this ill and, and they were just asking me to to do a 600 word piece for them on them essentially and on the, the year behind us. And I, I was writing about how difficult it must be for all of them who, who travel as often as they can to be so wildly detached from this, you know, to be miles away. Don't get me wrong, there, there are lots of international supporters and, and lots of people who travel from longer distances, Ireland in particular, but we, we all know that there's this huge group in Scandinavia who are very devoted. And you would phone up Peter from time to time to do his column and there would be noise in the background in his pub and he'd say to you, oh, the Norwegians are here. And he'd tell you how he would he would buy an extra vodka because they could they could drink him dry and, and regularly, regularly did. And you always get great stories about people when this happens. Like Bob Wilson was saying that one of Lorimer's tricks, aside from you know beating keepers from 30 yards, was to walk up to them as a corner was about to come into the box and to say things like, how's your family doing? And Bob would say that Lorimer would just appear at your side, ask you this question, and he would say, what? Like, why, why are you asking me that? And, you know, Peter would just say, everything all right with your wife, mate? How's, how's, <laughs> how's it going? And it was just total distraction. But, you know, it was a, a bit of a party trick and, and Bob said he was, he was always, always ready for it. And I was writing before, uh, during the COVID lockdown, about the dossiers that Don Reavy used to do um, Les Cocker's son Dave sent me a copy of one that they did for England. Um, so I was I was reviewing it and I was phoning around some of the players and asking, you know, what they made of it and whether whether they liked it, whether they found it tedious, whatever else. And I spoke to Eddie and I said, you know, what do you think of this? Was it was it worthwhile? Was it a pain in the neck? He said, I always find them okay. You know, I sat down and read them. They they could be useful. He said, but then you had other people like Lorimer who you couldn't convince to read the Racing Post for five minutes. And just used to totally disregard these. And I always remember Lorimer saying to me, his, his words, he said, Reavy would give you before an FA Cup tie these dossiers and it would make a fourth division right back sound like the greatest player since Pelly or whoever else. And Stanley Matthews. And, and he said, I'd read this. And I think to myself, why don't you just let me go out and beat the arse off him and score about five goals and then jobs are good. And, and I think, you know, the, there was a definite feeling of that in the dressing room that sometimes it was a bit overbearing. But that paints a really, really good picture of Lorimer, of, of somebody who never took things too seriously. And despite his performances and despite how good he was and the impact he constantly made, I think had a pretty good perspective on how important football was in the grand scheme. That does speak to his character, doesn't it? That oh, hugely that, laid back. That yeah. he just he just wanted to get out there and whack the ball as hard as he could into that yeah. net as many times as possible. Yeah, but was able to do that while still fitting into that team and being a hugely effective part of it. You know, it wasn't as if he was a an individual who didn't seem to have any understanding of the kind of collective idea behind it all. I think it was just his his feeling that he didn't need to be told the ins and outs of a right back playing for Swindon because he was perfectly confident of, of scoring a hat-trick anyway, and it, it ultimately it, it would matter. I think just underlying confidence in his own talent as a player, which actually is the story of that entire Reavy team. From front to back, they all knew that they were great. They all understood that they were they had huge amounts of, of ability, and they constantly backed themselves to beat anybody they played against. A wonderful fact that Johnny Cooper, who does research, brilliant research into um, all sorts of League United-related stuff, do look him up on Twitter, uh, he said that Lorimer's first appearance was alongside John Charles. His final appearance for Leeds United was alongside Terry Phelan, who we remember as a, a left back who went on to play for was Man City and Wimbledon. He was at as well, mm. wasn't he, Terry Phelan? Phelan also played alongside Phil Jagielka, who's still playing today. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a timeline of, of four players all the way from what early 60s right the way to, to 2021. I mean, Peter's longevity was amazing. And he had some weird and wonderful moves. He was... Out in Israel, he went to North America, uh, which is how he and Stepney got to know each other very well. Stepney also took a move to to an American club, um, I think towards the, the end of the, the 19, 1970s. A bit like Eddie, he feels like somebody who's been around the club forever or, or felt like somebody who'd been around the club forever, Peter. And, and I know that towards the end, even though he was ill and even though there was, there was COVID, he was still trying to sneak himself into the games because he couldn't help himself. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. International week this week then, as you well know. So no game to preview, no one to watch to pick for now. So I'll have a little look at the state of the union, if you like, see exactly where we are and what lies ahead between now and the uh, and the end of the season. Because this, when you get these international breaks, it's that point where you can kind of just stop, catch your breath and just take stock of things. All of us. And I think even though Leeds have had considerably fewer games this season than they ever had in, in the championship, everybody is ready for, for a breather. It's not as if the team were running out of steam or, or looking like they were running on empty. They played very well down at Fulham and, and still seem to have bundles of, of energy there. But there hasn't been much of much of a let up. And and actually, I mean, for, for a fair number of players at Leeds, there isn't going to be any let up in this fortnight either because a lot of them are away with international teams and it's a very, very busy schedule of World Cup fixtures, which leads us back to that thing we always complain about, which is the, the inability of anybody to compromise in these circumstances. It, it is genuinely now a case of everything that should be played getting rammed into some gap if there is any gap in the season. So yeah, no, a, a lot of them abroad, but but plenty of them still at Thorpe Arch. I, I would imagine that they will get a, a little bit of extra time off this week, but it has to be said that Bielsa doesn't tend to make huge concessions in international breaks. It's not really his style. And maybe Click has asked for a positive COVID test just so he could put his feet up for a couple of days because he is one player who's been looking knackered. And actually, he's made a few noises towards, uh, well, to that effect, hasn't he? I, I was reading some quotes from him that he gave to the Polish media a little bit earlier today. He, um, he tested positive on Tuesday. He then tested negative on Wednesday um, as we speak, I think due to have another test which will show something and then what happens after that will be you know, for, for people to, to determine um, on the basis of the, the result. They, um, Poland were, were going to Hungary, to, uh, to Budapest to play Hungary, game he, I believe, will miss. But he, he, was, say, he was asked about Leeds and he was asked about his form and I think... I think there are a fair few of us that feel that there's been a drop off from Cleek since Christmas and, and this side of um this side of the new year. He's looked a bit jaded, I think. He's looked a bit flat, a bit off colour. It's very hard to watch him. He's obviously had this hip injury as well, which he's he's tried to play through and particularly at Arsenal, I think started when, when he shouldn't have done but did because Calvin Phillips was missing and, and Bielsa needed him. But I think when you watch him at the moment, it's hard not to see somebody who has got 100 plus starts almost back to back in a, a really, really short period of time. I always say that if you look at Bielsa's tally of league matches as manager set against um, Matthias Cleek's tally of, of starts in that period as well, it, it's not far away from being identical. He's been, he has been there right the way through. And as he said in the quotes himself, he, he is 30 now and that is potentially the age where knocks and bumps and joints, you know, pain joints and so on starts to bother you more than it would do as a, a youngster or 21-year-old or, or even mid-20s when you, you feel at your peak and, and fully fresh. It, just the, the little hint from him that what we're seeing or what we think we're seeing is actually the case. And, and he was saying that he's been trying to rest a little bit more or at least has been rested slightly more by by being on the bench. And I don't think that, that can be a, a bad thing because it does feel a little bit like he could do with a touch of a reset. Can't wait until he's 40. I mean, you've just uh, crossed the Rubicon of 40 recently, Phil, haven't you? So uh, you'll know that everything hurts on a morning now when you wake up. I think everything's been hurting with me <laughs> since I was about 25, yeah. I think if I was doing motherball once a week, I'd have, I'd have died about two and a half years ago. But it, it does ask a lot. And I think that's one of the things, for example, that Hernandez, from what I'm told, has found toughest at Leeds at the, the motherball sessions because you, you're talking, he's coped and, you know, has, has coped fine, but you're talking about somebody who's reaching the end of his career um, shortly and um, almost 36 now and, and is a little bit prone to, to hamstring issues. Bielsa just cracks the whip with them. You know, it's, it's always been like that. And, and But that is part of the reason why they've been such a good team. They are extraordinarily fit. I mean, I, I interviewed recently Robbie Gotts over at Salford and I can't remember whether I spoke about this on the last podcast, but Robbie was saying that one of the amazing things about Bielsa was the way that the coaching and the training gave you the ability to find a little bit extra that you didn't think you had and a little bit extra that you'd never found before and that you didn't think your body was capable of. And you can see that in the way that this Leeds team are able to to run right to the end of 93, 94, 95 minutes. I'll never forget Klopp saying that on the first weekend of the season, the fact that it was 
95 minutes and you still had them at you. You know, there was no kind of discernible dip in the performance and no discernible dip in their, their energy levels. I guess from time to time it is going to catch up on certain people and it certainly looks a little bit like it, it has done with Cleek. But but even then, he's played a lot of games this season and, and perhaps hasn't been as wildly effective as you would want him to be. But you're still talking about a side who are almost up to 40 points and, and have been excellent in patches and, and very good in the main. Um, so it is a tough regime and it is extremely demanding. It does put a lot of physical stress on the players. But when you get the stories that you do from somebody like Gotts and you understand the impact that it's had on them, you start to, to properly understand why it's been so effective. And I don't think there are any players who would turn the clock back and want it to be any different. They all know that it's been it's been good for them and it's been good for the club. We saw quotes this week from Pep Guardiola who's pointed out that they face Leeds, the Man City, either side, oh, sorry, in the middle of it's the middle of the sandwich, isn't it? The, uh, the Champions League quarterfinal and they couldn't uh, wish to face a worse side in terms of output and running, which I think is great. It's a big compliment to Leeds that. It is. And, you know, as has as been apparent and Bales has talked about this and so have other clubs as well, teams who play against Leeds do tend to increase their running stats and the, the distance they cover. Um, I'm sure Guardiola would have liked a nice gentle run around against somebody else in that game, the saving grace for him being that there's such a big cushion at the top of the Premier League that they could almost afford to throw that game and, and be fine. I hope they do. Anyway, but they oh, absolutely, sh- they me should. too. Me they too. Do that. Um, but it's clear now where the priorities are going to lie for Guardiola, you know, particularly with the Champions League, which he's never won there and which has kind of generated this reputation of him generally getting it wrong at key moments when City seemed to have it all in front of them. I'm absolutely certain that he could do without a Bielsa reunion um, midway through that week. Having said that, Whenever I pick through the depth in City's squad and whenever I watch them play, I feel as if they could play Saturday, Tuesday, every week for the rest of time and pretty much turn over everybody. We've got to 40 points or thereabouts with relative ease. What represents a good points total for for this season then? Do we think 50 would be a nice target? I think 40 represents a good points tally for this season. I do. But realistically, going by the average that they're on at the moment, they should get somewhere close to 50, if not beyond that. And it is pretty rare for a promoted club. We touched on this in a previous podcast that was saying that only since it's been a 20-team league, there have only been 10 sides who've been promoted and have, have gone past 50 points in the, the first season. I think they would deserve to do it. I think they've been good enough to do it. And I don't think if they were to finish on 51, 52, 53, you would look back in future years and say, well, they got to that point, but actually they, they want a great side and, and you know, they, they kind of bluffed their way through it or they were winging it from time to time. I think they have been that good and, and I think they, they will finish round about that, that sort of points total, which for a first season back is absolutely terrific. It is exactly what the club wanted in that they budgeted for 17th. But if you'd said to them, what do you really want from this season? I think they would have said that we're safe or basically safe by the time we're coming out the other side of winter because it gives you that nice little camp period where you can, not freewheel because they also won't freewheel, but where you can sit back and enjoy it. I'm just looking down the fixtures. I mean, what do you think, Michael? Sheffield United obviously going to win that. Man City away, they'll throw that one as we decided, we'll win that. Liverpool at home, they're struggling, we'll win that. We're overdue a win against Man United at home, we'll win that. Brighton, struggling, win that. Spurs, they're not great at the minute, are they? They're all falling out with each other. Mourinho's last game, probably. Yeah, win that. I mean, Burnley, Southampton and West Brom, we can probably throw a blanket all over, over all three of those. Rubbish. So I'll win all three of those. So unbeaten and maximum points till the end of the season. I think a big scalp would be nice before the end of the season because we've, we've come close in some games, the Liverpool and the Man City games, it felt like we gave a good account. Old Trafford was a disaster. So it feels like if we could get a win in one of those fixtures, it'd be a, it'd be a nice way to cap off the season for us. Somebody else said that to me this week. It, it would be good if you could turn over one of the sides at the top of the league. Manchester City in particular would be, would be great away away at Eastlands. We'll make a note of Dan's comments so that when it finishes with nine, oh, come on. nine defeats on, on the bounce, I can pass that um, jinx mantle a little bit further yeah, because over, I, because, over the table. Because I meant it, Phil, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I do think, actually, that there are winnable games in there and... It was kind of strange, you know, coming out of certain results, particularly the the Aston Villa one um, and, and to a degree the Arsenal game. I, I was aware of comments on a Q&A that we, we do on The Athletic. Not many of them, but a few people going dangerously close to the line of where's our next point coming from, you know, or where's our next result coming from. And I never felt like that. And I, I always thought that you would have defeats interspersed with, with better results, particularly in that run of City, Liverpool, Man United back-to-back, but Sheffield United, Brighton, Burnley, Southampton, West Brom, they are very, very winnable games. And I think if you 
are aiming for 50 points, you've definitely got, got a chance. And the one thing that the win down at Fulham did um, was completely kill all talk of relegation, if anybody was talking about it. They are 13 points back now, and even I can confidently say, without any <laughs> fear, fear of reprisals, um, that it's all done and dusted. Do you think there's one eye on league positions as well? Because I've been looking at the numbers for um, for the TV money and the prize money and all that, and it's it's worth a lot of money. Even a couple of league places gets you more money than winning the FA Cup, which obviously there's no danger of that now or probably at any time in the near future. Well, Angus Kinnear, you'll have seen him say on the Amazon documentary, you know, I try to save money and make it. Victor spends the money in the transfer market. So he will have a definite eye on it for sure. He'll, he, he has very, very in-depth knowledge of this stuff, um, Angus, is any chief executive would at a Premier League club. So he will know the difference and he'll, he'll know the, the difference of, of income that's going to arrive. I don't imagine Bielsa has even looked at the potential difference in income for, for league positions. I'm not, I wouldn't imagine it's uh, something that interests him in the slightest or is, is in any way um, motivation for him. But it is significant. And, you know, the, the difference is pretty, pretty large. If you're not familiar with what those numbers look like, um, so the TV money is divvied up in three ways, isn't it? You get a basic fee, like an equal share that everybody gets. That's 75 million quid per club. And then you get £1.1 million per TV appearance and you're guaranteed a minimum of 10 of those. So you get like 11 million quid for that. And then it's £3.2 million per league place now. It's gone up quite significantly because they've incentivised that because I think they wanted to give more money to the big clubs who finish higher up the table. That was adjusted slightly downwards last season because they had to do a rebate on the TV. So each league place was actually worth £2.7 million. So assuming it's similar again, two and a half, three million quid per league place. It's significant. You know, a couple of league places is six million quid. Well, Kinnear always makes the point that in the championship last season, Leeds made around about two million pounds from TV money. And, and this season, you're talking more like a hundred million pounds. But you essentially make more by moving from 10th to 9th in the Premier League than you do from a full season of, of TV games in the championship. And don't get me wrong, you move from 10th to 9th on the basis of an entire season. It's not as if it's that you know that just comes down to, to one game. But the levels of money are, are extraordinary at this level in comparison to what Leeds have been feeding on for, for such a long time. I think because of the, the outgoings of clubs, it's helpful to take an extra £3.2 million. But you do start to think of it not as chicken feed, but as a pretty small drop in, in the ocean compared to what they're dealing with in, in the main and the, the revenue they have, the income that they have, but it, it just goes to show that it's not actually difficult to claw in more revenue at this level if you perform well and, and you know you know what you're doing. So last year, Norwich, who finished bottom there, got 94.4 million quid. Liverpool top got 174.6 million. And Arsenal, as a nice benchmark for 10th, they got 130 million point five. So we should be in that ballpark, you would imagine. And I know you have outgoings and you have very, very high wage bills. I think Leeds this season will be much closer to £100 million than it was to, to £50 million. But throughout Radrazani's time, while they were in the Championship, one of the things they were aiming for was to push their annual turnover beyond the £50 million mark. You know, that was seen as a, a real, a really big and, and ambitious target. And when you're saying that Norwich, by finishing bottom of the Premier League, raked in £94 million in that manner alone, it highlights again the, the massive disparity. Um, and the fact that I guess every pound and every penny counts in the EFL, up in the Premier League, it, it is very different and, and you are able to be a bit more rational with what you do with your, your cash. But yeah, the, essentially, if you can stay in the Premier League for any length of time, it gives you the scope to make big infrastructure changes. It gives you the scope to spend on things that you haven't spent on for longer than, than you should have done. And in Leeds' case, you know that there's no end to the list of, of, of things that have been neglected in the past 15, 20 years. The stadium, the training ground now, almost getting to the point where Leeds need a, feel that they need a new state-of-the-art facility. Uh, the, even the sports hub on Fullerton Park, the sort of thing that was just never going to happen really, or was highly unlikely to happen until they, they got to the point where they, they felt more secure. In terms of transfers then and Victor spending that money, you've spoken in recent times, Phil, about maybe up to five signings. So so where do we arrive at, at that figure from? I know, I know we discussed it in, in podcasts previous, so I'm kind of keen to get handles on as much as that, but which positions are we going to be looking to fill? Yeah, these things are always quite fluid in, in part because, well, I mean, they're still to figure out whether or not Bielsa will be here next season. I think the likelihood is that he will. And he can bob and weave a little bit with with what he's looking for. His, his attitudes can change depending on what he sees through pre-season or, or who he thinks is 
has developed. But we will see a, a sizable number, or at least a decent, you know, a decent chunk. I, I'm absolutely certain they will go for for a left back, and you know, given that Alioski is still not taking the offer that's on the, the table from Leeds, and, and given that I don't expect Leeds to revise that offer or to change it or up it at all, it does look like increasingly like he he will be going. That means that they they need more cover there, but I think more than anything, they've they've reached the point where they do need an out and out left back. You know, a real specialist in that position. They will try and get cover for Calvin Phillips. I I do expect them as well to go for a midfielder further up the pitch, whether that's a ten or a or an eight or some sort of hybrid. Would you, you prefer know. Rodrigo de Paul to have eight or ten as a squad number? Well, I'm I'm quite easy really, but I don't know whether from your point of view buying a strip next season you would want one or t'other. Mm, it's always troubled me that Alioski as a sort of hybrid left back, left winger has had number 10. It always feels like number 10 should be reserved to one of your premium squad members. It's kind of, it's McAllister to me, you know? Yeah, but then Phillips has 23 and I always think that Phillips would be tailor-made for number, for four. number four. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you could get eight stroke ten on the back just to be avant garde. David Batty had twenty three in his second spell though, didn't he? So there's a there's a history to it. Yeah. 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 And like somebody was saying, people like Michael Jordan have won twenty three as well. So stay in the company that you want to you want to mix with, really. Um but yeah, I think a, a more attack minded midfielder will, will be on the mind as well, which which again suggests that we may well see movement with Hernandez when the summer comes. So just, what do you reckon then? Um left back, deep line midfielder, central, more advanced midfielder. Maybe a wide player if if they look to make changes there potentially, or it might be that they they look at younger options again. I mean, it has to be said the twenty threes have just about secured promotion at this point, and they have been a mile above the standard of the rest of of their league. And I know that there are first team players included in the teams regularly, but there are also a hell of a lot of twenty threes who are just looking exceptional. Gelhart, especially. I mean. He, Everybody knew that he was a steal when he came in for the price that he did and, and he was really, really highly highly rated. And I thought he told a story that Bielsa got himself on one of the Zoom calls when they were trying to, you know, to push that deal and to make sure that he, he didn't go to Leicester instead. He looks incredibly talented. And I think they, they do like the idea that you've got, say, Drami, for example, who could be a, a successor to Luke Ayling. You've got Gelhart who who could come through. And you've got Somerville who's been extremely impressive in goals and, and assists from him. Creswell is a centre-back who, who looks to have a lot of ability and, and actually, you know, a, a good crop who you're not just thinking are decent or half-decent actually look better than that and, and you know, could could be very, very useful and very valuable further down the line. So so you might find that it's not a case of five signings who are all top-level and, you know, ready to go first-team-wise or, or at least as, as starters in the Premier League. Um, but I think, it's like I said before, I think we'll start to see now a little bit more movement on from the squad that was promoted and just an, another attempt to to refresh it and to improve it and make it better. Just to go back to Alioski for a second, it's been, I'm sure your mentions have been absolutely full of it. What What is the latest situation with him? Because it's been a, a huge, I can say debate, but it's been more of a, a it's been a proper argument online all week as, as what it, his future. Leeds want him to stay. There's an offer on the table. As I said, I don't think it will be improved or changed. I think it is, it is as it is and he'll either accept it or he won't. I can't say whether he's going to Galatasaray. I don't think anything has been agreed there and I don't think anything has been formally accepted. But the talk of Galatasaray is extremely strong and, and there's enough noise from Turkey to make you think that they would genuinely like to to take him. I mean, going over old ground slightly because we did talk about this before in a little bit of detail, there is obviously the, the issue of the club that he would be going to there and the history between Leeds and, and Galatasaray. And I totally understand that while there are some people, and I'm kind of on this side of the fence, who who don't think that Alioski should be constrained by what went on 21 years ago, there are equally other people who don't want to see any player who, who has passed through Leeds move to Galatasaray and, and to take that transfer for political reasons and reasons of, of what is very poisonous and, and uncomfortable history. I think in Alioski's defence, and, and I am repeating myself here, he, he was very young when that happened. He, he's Macedonian. He didn't grow up in Leeds. He wasn't like Harry Kuehl where he came through the academy. He wasn't like Harry Kuehl where uh, he was actively involved in that game on the night and you know in the, in the days surrounding it. He is 29 and he needs to think about himself and his family and, and his career. And I think some of the, the criticism and the abuse that's been aimed at him is ex- extremely harsh and, and probably doesn't have that point of view in mind when it's made but I do equally understand that it's a very very delicate subject and that there are a lot of people who are very badly scarred by what went on. Yeah I'm kind of in a a philosophical position about it in that I don't like the idea at all 
I really don't think he should, but equally I'm powerless to affect the outcome of this. So that's just kind of where I've resolved myself to be on it. I'd urge him not to do it. Yeah. I think partly as well, he, he is something of, in, of an unfortunate position here because partly the reason it is still such a sore point of Leeds is because of the conduct of Galatasaray yeah. at the time and since. And therefore it this this it hasn't healed at all in the in the twenty years there. Yeah, there's been no contrition, has there? There hasn't. No, no. And and I think that's why people would still be so against it, because they've never held their hands up to the way it was handled at the time or the way the Turkish authorities handled it. There was so much went wrong with it, it's probably never gonna feel right. I, I don't think over there there are enough people who think they have anything to say sorry for and it's it's never going to heal now because it's been it, it was so poorly handled and some of the conduct in Turkey was so poor that no matter what is said now or, or what, what anybody tries to do it, it won't heal the wounds and, and it won't kind of restore any respect between Leeds and Galatasaray it was perfectly obvious to me from speaking to, to Peter Ridsdale last year that he still resents a lot of what went on over there and the way that the Galatasaray in particular handled themselves. I think the complexity of this is that you don't know what else Alioski is being offered. And, and clearly there is a contract at Leeds and you could say, well, why doesn't he just take that? But there is a there is a sort of professional decision for him here and, and professional consideration about what is going to suit him best in, in the long term. Does he have other offers? Are they good enough? Do they reflect the level he's playing at at the moment? Would he be underselling himself if he if he took them? And if he is underselling himself, is it reasonable to expect that he does that purely so that he he doesn't kind of cross this divide that that some people think he he couldn't cross? It's incredibly difficult conversation, and and I suspect if you put a hundred people in a room, there would be a hundred people who would come at it from a slightly slightly different angle. I personally feel that he should be free to make his his own choices, which is something that I wouldn't have said about Harry Kuehl and Galatasaray. But equally, I do accept that there are people who don't think that's the case. And I think even if you do accept that as a position and you know we've got no control over what he ultimately decides to do in taking that move, if he does, and we don't know for sure at all that he will do, but if he does, he does that understanding that it could erase his legacy at Leeds in its entirety in the eyes of, of some people, which is a position I completely understand. I want to remember him fondly, and if he does go there, it will kind of make it impossible because I will essentially be wanting him to fail in his career from this point onwards, and I will it will always be a, a sore point to a degree. No, again, nothing like the same as Harry Kuehl, but it is, it, like I say, just don't go. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, I could, if I could urge him not to. It would be completely wrong as well to say that people shouldn't feel like that. Uh, as I say, I've, I've got my own personal view on it, but having written about it last year, the, the damage that it did. And I've watched over the past few nights the BBC documentary on sexual abuse in, in football and it's obviously a completely different subject. But what was really apparent in that is the way that it's damaged people in to a degree that they'll never recover from. You know, some of the, the people on it look completely, completely broken. And I think that's true as well of some of the people, you know, on this side of the water who were directly affected by the, the, the killings in, in Istanbul. And on that basis, it would be totally wrong to say to people that you aren't allowed to be critical or, or damning of, of Alioski for doing it. I just feel sorry for him that he's going to be in this position where that might be by far and away the best offer for him and, and the best option for him at a period of his career where he isn't going to get many more big moves, he isn't going to get many more big contracts. It just happens that this is how it's gone and this is the, the situation he's in. And it's almost very difficult to to handle it in a way. If that if that is the outstanding offer for him, and there's nothing else to compare with it, and there's nothing else that that really appears, it's very difficult to handle this in a way which doesn't look slightly messy. Well, we will watch it play out, and ultimately we'll react to it as and when uh, we know what's what's happening there. Just to return to to Leeds then very quickly, and and the Premier League. What do we predict for the remainder of the Premier League season? We always you know pick a prediction out at the back end of the show, Phil. Let's sort of do it in a broader sense now. Then Premier League, Blades and West Brom already gone. Who else is going? I feel as if Fulham are going to go, I, I, which is, I, I always feel sorry saying that because I feel that Fulham should have enough to stay up. And I feel that if any club deserves to go, it's Newcastle for the way they've they've been running. And also the sort of intransigence that's been there as they've dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. There doesn't seem to be any urgency. There, there don't seem to be many people taking direct responsibility for this. Fulham, on the other hand, I think have, have all gelled pretty impressively since the turn of the year and, and have got the bit between the teeth and decided that they, they'd want to give themselves as good a chance as they possibly can. But I thought there were 
there were little traits and little signs in that performance against Leeds which made me think that time might just run out for them before they can they can properly catch up and, and properly move past anybody else. And I wouldn't direct that at their fans either. I mean, we always laugh at the misfortune of, of other clubs' fans, but it's the ownership there, isn't it, at Newcastle? Oh, Newcastle, yeah, uh, no. Who've kind of who've courted this for so long. You have to say as well that if you've been following any of this on, on Twitter or journalists in the media who, who support follow Newcastle, a lot of people have been warning that it was in the post. A lot of people felt that it would catch up on Newcastle because of the way they were playing and, and because they don't look anything like a, a complete team with, with much of a strategy. And, and that's proven to be true. I mean, it, I was reading quotes from Bruce, you know, not so long ago, talking, Steve Bruce talking about, you know, we're a couple of games unbeaten, which is desperate, desperate level to be at. Where a couple of games unbeaten where you've drawn with West Brom and, and Aston Villa is being floated as, as a positive sign or a kind of arrow directing you towards survival. I mean, they need, gutted completely they, they need complete change at, at, at all levels and it doesn't seem to, to be coming but I think the one thing you, you'd have to say for Newcastle's fans as much as you know you'd think a lot about how long suffering they are they've not been blindsided by this at all this is no surprise I don't think to many people up there they, they knew this was coming they knew there was a high likelihood that they were they were going to be in trouble and actually from from what I read I think there's still a very very big group up there who think they're going to go so we look forward to Brighton ultimately getting relegated. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or Palace somehow dropping from 37 points. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that then, gentlemen. We will return and reconvene next week and preview the Sheffield United game. In the meantime, get in touch with us on Twitter. The Phil Hay Show is the handle on there and you can subscribe to The Athletic for that special price of three ninety nine a month for six months at the minute. 40% off a full price of a sub. Analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all the podcasts at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Back next week. We'll speak to you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.